Broadcasting from the commodity capital of the world, Zurich, Switzerland, this is Insider's Guide to Energy. Insider's Guide to Energy, ETRM mini-series, brought to you by Fedectus, where post-trading matters, and falls in independent management and consulting beauty, creating impacts for clients and markets. Welcome to Insider's Guide to Energy, ETRM educational mini-series. This week, we are excited to bring with us to this episode, Provice Systems, and from Provice with Asbon Hansen. Asbon, welcome to the program. Thank you. Hi, Chris. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Fantastic to have you. And of course, I have my co-host, Martin Hiller, with me as well. I neglected to introduce him, but we have both you. What we're going to do today is we're going to talk ETRM. And before we get into it, I think we should start fairly high level. I've done this with all our previous guests. And everybody going on, it was, we want to get your industry perspective. So from my perspective, the ETRM space is crowded. That's one of the things that made me wake up one day and say, hey, let's do an ETRM educational miniseries. I see a lot, of, a lot of smoke. I see money. I see companies trying to reinvent themselves. I see new companies coming out. And so what I want to ask you to start the show is, first, what's happening in the industry? What, what, what's going on there? Why, why so much noise? Well, I think there's, there's multiple reasons for the noise, right? The, the one, one part of it is that you have, even though the, the market's a bit crowded, right? You have certain vendors who are pretty much building up large monopolies, right? So that's one side of things, right? Where a lot of products are now in the same hat, right? So at the end of the day, you have less vendors out there, right? Um, but you have then, you have the other side of it, which is many small startups like ourselves, right? Who's starting up and then saying, well, actually, there's a space here and there's a lot of value we can bring uh, to the marketplace, right? So you combine that with a market from, from the, the, uh, our customers' perspective, right, which is very volatile, right, has a lot of uh, market volatility this year, a lot of uh, crazy prices, right, which means that a lot of different areas of the market are suddenly changing dramatically, right. I was just on the phone before this podcast with somebody in the Nordics who's basically saying that there's no liquidity left uh, in the markets up there and people are trying to struggle, struggle with that and have to find new ways of, of getting price information, new ways of trading, right. Um, and similarly, you see the, the price moves uh, around Europe uh, this summer and this autumn, right, where a lot of the OTC trading is pretty much dying out a little bit because of that, right? And people's credit limits are being hit and uh, moving things to, to exchanges, but then cash and, and margin call becomes a problem for people, right? So uh, a lot of people are kind of struggling and, and trying to figure out how do they, you know, utilize the cash they have in the best possible way, right? Uh, how do you how do you trade around uh, around the assets you have in a, in a better and less cash-consuming way because, of course, th- this is something that will hit everybody at the moment. And, and systems is kind of one of the best ways to, to address that problem, right? So, Aspen, I, I heard you saying that on the one hand, there is more like a monopolistic structure in the market if you look mm-hmm. at the vendors. Mm-hmm. But you also mentioned uh, that there are more startups coming up with uh, mm-hmm. new ideas. So why is there this movement that there are more startups um, coming up? Is it because of the monopolistic structure or is it because the the clients really um, require maybe new technology or new business functionality that uh, monopolistic structures or companies cannot provide? Well, I think it's, it's more technology actually driving at the moment, right? So so um, a lot of people are looking for, for new technology, right? And technology is, is required to 
to to meet the market we are in today, right? So if, if you look at a lot of the, the legacy systems that were built at a time where you traded very little, you did big, large trades. Now you're in a market where algos are driving things, right? People are trading very, very high pace and, and, and uh, a lot of small transactions, right? Which means the systems you're using needs a different footprint, right? It's a different problem to solve, right? If you have, you know, a few hundred, a few thousand large uh, long-term deals, that's kind of one problem to solve, right? If you have, you know, 15 million short-term deals, it's kind of a different problem. You need different technology, right? You, you can't use, use the same the same shovel to dig, dig the hole, right? It's, it's two different things. So, so you know, trying to find good ways of applying technology to do both and basically separate, you know, two different problems you type solve in one one package is is, is a big thing here. Okay, and 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 how does, uh, from your point of view, Previce fit in that uh, sense? I mean, obviously, you are a more young um, and startup driven um, company, but uh, tell us more about your solution in that context uh, when it comes to technology and what you can offer to the clients. Yeah, so we started from more of a renewable standpoint, right? And decided to say, okay, let's build something around GOs first, with something where nobody had a solution for that, we believe, right? But then we took PPAs, and then we bought, built our way back into the normal, more classical trading uh, software from there, right? We, we kind of building our products on, on four different building blocks, right? So one thing is performance and scalability, right? So that's really about using technology to scale things up and, and looking at, you know, trade captures in milliseconds, not not anything above that, right? Uh, valuations is in, in milliseconds as well, right? We, you know, at the moment we have a target to be able to capture trades uh, on average at 200 milliseconds per trade. And we want to be able to, you know, have real-time positions in, in, in around 500 milliseconds, right? And, and we have a good way to get there. Um, so that's one thing that that's what we need for the algos to work and for for the system to actually add that additional value and give our customers a competitive edge, right? Then usability, right, is, is, is another thing, right? Where a lot of the legacy systems were built 20 years ago uh, with UIs and things that, that came from that era. Um, and we saw a lot... We've seen a lot of places where you know people put in spend a lot of money putting in systems, but the system adoption is very low because the users can't find their way around. The system is too complex to operate, right? So building usability into the software is, is key, right? Fast deployment is is really something that we also uh, spend a lot of time on fixing. We actually be doing uh, something right now where we uh, we signed a contract with the with a new large uh, company the other week, and uh, they will go to parallel run next week, I believe. Um, so by being able to put the software in very very quickly and actually scaling to other markets very, very quickly without having to do much configuration, much, much deployment is, is key, right? Um, and the last thing is basically uh, automation, right? So system automation is is, uh, is the last thing that everybody needs to be able to handle the high frequency of trades. So it sounds like Provice started um, meeting a need or, or looking at new and emerging technologies coming in. You, you said you just landed a new large customer. Um, so this is a gray field, though, right? It's not a green field play. So, so how do you get um, a transition? What do you, you know, if you're a large trader and you have infrastructure in place? How do you convince, or how you know, even if you're a quick deployment, how do you convince them to make that move? Or are they willing to make the move? Or they only do it for part of their portfolio? How does a company like Provice get get into a a large energy trade that's established? Yes, we typically do it for part of the portfolio um, and do it in smaller steps, right? So you know these. You know, big bang projects that, that was part of energy ETRM back in the past, right? And there's loads of horror stories about that that requires a whole bar conversation. But, but, um, but those big projects, I think that that's, that's, that's the past now, right? We never, nobody's going to do that anymore. Everybody knows how expensive that gets and, and how big the risks are and, and those things, right? So we always try to focus on smaller areas of the portfolio and then try to work with the customers to basically build a landscape where you can plug in and plug out systems, right? So, you you know, it's not enough to have one solution that does everything. You're never going to get the right solution for that anyways, right? 
So big, being able to pick out different solutions from different parts of your portfolio, and then having a an overview uh, built with technology as well, of course, where you have event-driven uh, trades being pushed across uh, the different systems into a consolidated picture is a much better way uh, for the customers to drive their business, I believe, right? So that gives you the flexibility you need to choose different tools for different things, and at the same time, a consolidated view across it, right? And I think a lot of the customers we talk to are using a lot of new technology as well with in that in that uh, space, right? Something like Snowflake and those sort of more modern data warehouse uh, approaches, which allows you to basically plug in different systems that way. And I think if you start looking at your landscape from that perspective, it's much, much easier to scale out uh, and utilize different tools and say, well, actually, maybe tomorrow you start trading metals or you have grains or you have LNG or whatever in your portfolio. And when you look at that, it might be different solutions that is the best solution for those products, right? Um, you know, so, and that's kind of how we, we, we get in there normally. So, so how old is your company? We started in we started coding in November two thousand nineteen. Um, we had the first customer go live in July twenty. And then, where is your development done? What where, what countries do you develop in? Well, we have our core team in Switzerland. Um, so that's mainly for mainly the the core team and our product management group that sits here, right? Then we have quite a few different contractors in various places. We have a, a few people in the UK. We have a, a contractor in Bulgaria and one and a set of people in Romania as well. So we, what we're trying to do is, is, is space it out and use different people for different things, right? So the core team who does all the framework and, and all the high-performance things sit very closely together here, right? And then we have a lot of CRUD APIs and UI things, which we typically, you know, outsource to other people and say, look, you know, here's our spec, go build this and bring it back to us, right? Because otherwise the cost effectiveness is not really there, right? So it's a way of getting, using nearshoring to, uh, to get better cost effectiveness for our, for our development cost, right? Yeah, cool. Thanks, Aspion. Um, so but let's move maybe a bit uh, content-wise to a topic that you mentioned already at the beginning, renewables. I think um, it's worth talking about it a bit more in detail because this is really what the industry is currently to a big extent driving. So from your point of view, how important is the energy transition for your clients and what do you specifically offer to manage this transition? I think you've mentioned already that you were you grew from that uh, yeah. direction, but maybe you can elaborate a bit more on that, on your view. Yeah, sure. Well, actually, the thing about us is we actually only have renewable <laughs> portfolios at the moment on uh, with our customers, right? Even the next on your side is also a big renewable producer, right? So, um, so we started out from from PPAs, from GOs, uh, and said, well, first of all, because we believe that's the future, right? Uh, and being able to track your, your renewable production is, um, is, is crucially important for people, right? And we think it goes on both sides, both on the producer side, but also from the buyer side. Um, there's a whole market there of consumers of energy who's currently, from my point of view, a bit untapped, right? Who doesn't really realize that they actually need to manage their positions. Same thing goes with, with CO2 and, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, where people, as long as the price were very low, nobody really cared. But now that the price is very high, uh, suddenly it becomes much more, uh, much more important for people to actually look at what they're doing, right? And so we started out with that. We built our system around that from the get-go, right? So while we designed things around kind of the Acer, Acer structures of trades, uh, CPML scheme and those sort of things, we, we basically um, focused on GOs first, right? Uh, then PPAs, and then from there into, into, as I said, into the more classical power and gas portfolio, right? So, so that, that's how we, we're looking at that. And of course, the, the volatility that it brings makes it more important, right, to, to manage this well, right? Um, uh, both on a, on a longer-term position with the PPAs, but also the short-term volatility that comes out of the, the leftovers in your portfolio, right, that you need to trade on a very short-term basis. 
Okay, understood. So understood that basically you started out on on, on GOs and PPAs, uh, but um, maybe tell us a bit more from from your client's uh, point of view. What does it make so, or what does PPA and GOs make so special, or maybe complex? Is it like the capturing of the trades with all the attributes? Is it the pricing, the valuation, the risk management? I guess it's more than just one topic, but maybe you can elaborate yeah. a bit on the challenges and what you offer um, sure. as Prewise. Yeah, sure. We start with the GOs first, maybe, right? Because that's kind of the, the funniest, uh, funniest one, at least my view, right? Because what we see there is that people have, you know, GO is not just a GO, right? You have all these different labels that goes with the trades, right? So you, somebody wants um, a GO from a newly built wind park, right? And they'll pay extra for that. Other people want to have a GO that looks at a, at a pretty, pretty site or has doesn't kill salmon, doesn't kill birds, whatever it is uh, that, that the label uh, guarantees uh, on the GO means that it becomes a very intransparent market, right? There's a uh, there's a big bit ask spread in this market, from what I see at least, uh, where you, you might go and trade generic GOs on, on more uh, structured platforms, right? But a lot of the OTC, most of it is OTC trading, right? And a lot of that is really about finding buyers who's willing to pay extra from, you know, hydropower done locally, close to where their customers are, or for wind power done from a specific area with a specific eco-label, right? So basically being able to capture that, and then being able to match up, right, to, to make take advantage of the bid spread that this brings and this complexity of the contract bring, right? Um, actually, more, not so much the contract, more the demand-driven uh, complexity, right, that, that that gives us that. That's one thing. That's really something that, uh, especially our GO customers, um, spend a lot of time with us building into the software from the get-go so they can capture these things and try to optimize how do I do that. And at the same time, since the GOs expire within a year, right, you need to make sure you want to always use the oldest first and, and all these sort of logic pieces, logical pieces that you need to put into your into your software, right? So that's kind of one one area, right? Um, on the PPA side, it's more that, of course, PPAs are typically long-term deals, right, um, with, with long-term times and stuff. And that's not so different from what it was in the past, but every PPA have some sort of uh, of its own logic attached to it, right? Uh, they are typically quite complex agreements, right, with all kind of uh, additional things. And what we offer for that is we, we have a core PPA uh, solution, right? But since every agreement might be a little bit different, we built our software in a way where everything is accessible via our ecosystem and via our app store so that people can build additional functionality just for the specific contract into the software and, and have it executed seamless, seamlessly, right? So you don't have to work go outside and do the calculation and put it back in. You can actually build your own little little app uh, for this specific contract and, and uh, do those calculations. Some stuff like profit sharing or whatever it is in these PPA contracts, right? It's, it's always uh, hard to model from a generic standpoint that each, each agreement might have different differences, right? Okay, so what I understood from your view is that on the one hand, uh, more complex deal structures for GOs and PPAs makes it... Uh, difficult for your or more difficult than usual for your clients to capture trades but also the the whole topic deal life cycle for those kind of structured trades is then more um yeah uh, challenging um and maybe in that context because i think that's at least something that i can see that is challenging for clients the whole topic pricing evaluation of ppas mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. also then risk management of existing ppas in Mm -hmm. I can see that this is not, since it's structured trades, something that you easily do. So my question to you is, do you provide a pricing and risk management model or do you more follow as of now the approach? Okay, I heard now 
I heard you saying App Store, um, that you say to your clients, um, here we have an App Store, we, we open up our platform for you to develop your own pricing models. Or maybe you have a partner that, that provides you an app for pricing and risk management. It also depends on where you are, right? Uh, if you're you know, pre-trade or post-trade, right? Um, I think there's mm -hmm. two, two very different things, yeah. right? So, so we, we focus mainly on post-trade, right? So the whole pre-trade uh, part, there's, there's lots of vendors out there who does, does very well, like Qs and, and others, Pixapark and so forth, who all does these, these uh, pre-trade uh, things, right? Which is one, one problem to solve, right? And then we are more on the post-trade part, right? We're basically looking at, okay, now that you've, you've done the trade, how do you value it now? And how do you manage the risk? And, and the, the different elements of this agreement, right? So what we offer, of course, is the ability to capture such a trade, being able to capture all the different constraints that are built into the trade, right? Um, being able to capture price formulas and attach it to the trade, mm -hmm. if that's the case, right? Um, but at the same time, and of course, run normal mark-to-market and those sort of things uh, around around the, the PPAs. That's just you know basic bread and butter stuff, right? But at the same time, if you need more complex optimizations across it, right, uh, then... Allowing people to build that with with via the ecosystem, right? Uh, allowing people to to add their own functionality or hook in other vendors who have uh, more deep risk management expertise than we do, right? So we we're not trying to be uh, the uh, the end all be all, right? We actually believe very firmly that we should focus on the main ETRM part and let people who are more specialists in different areas build their own apps for that, right? So. Um, We don't want to build nomination solutions, for example. We don't, we're not going to follow the nomination market very much. We're not going to build quantitative analysis solutions. We don't have the expertise in that, right? There's other companies out there who's way better at that, uh, and who should provide those things on, as apps on our platform rather than us spending time on it, right? Because that will give the customers a better solution and hopefully a competitive edge rather than uh, us trying to, to, you know, spread too wide, right? Uh, I think at least what I've seen in the past, uh, is that a lot of vendors try to build everything, right? And if you try to build everything, you end up doing nothing really well. Um, so try to focus on what's actually really good for the for the main product and uh, for the customers is, is important to us, right? Um, and then have partners build the rest. So you talk about an uh, ecosystem. You, you, you mentioned that your customers might want to build something or use a third party. Let, mm -hmm. Let's maybe walk, dive a little bit deeper into how that would work and, and describe your ecosystem. And, you know, let's go down the two approaches, whether they build it themselves or whether there's third parties Uh, that you said that you'd like to have them involved. Can you explain how that works for your environment? Yeah, so, so the way it works is basically they we have a kind of an app framework where people can um, can sign up for right and, and go in and build their stuff right. Uh, there's kind of two options to do it. They can either build things um, using our existing stack right, so basically using Azure Functions and those sort of things, uh, C sharp code right, and, and utilize all of the the nuggets that we already have. Uh, it's basically an SDK right, where you have all the, the framework we've already built and all the tools and functions we have built already that you can go utilize. So you don't have to, you know, invent your own stuff around daylight savings or time zone handling and all that sort of stuff, right? You can utilize all that from, from our software, right? Um, so that's one, one way. And that way you can go build it and apply it in a snap for yourself. Keep it completely private so nobody else can use it. That, that's your app. Or you could say, actually, I want to resell this, uh, via the, the app store, right? And in that case, you package it up. It goes through, uh, some, some, uh, Review uh, on our side in that case, right? Before it then gets applied to the app store and people, other people can buy it, right? So that goes to both partners and for customers, right? So some customers are keen on building their own apps and, and they're building them and uh, keeping them in house so that they get their own proprietary information. That's especially around optimization and those sort of things. Others are looking more for, especially interfaces, right? Going, let's get a third party to build this interface to get prices in from Bloomberg or Reuters or whatever, right? There's no reason for me to build that 
knowledge in, in-house, then we get, go get it off the shelf and get a partner to build it. And then we sell it on platform, right? So I just pay a monthly fee for, for the interface and that's it. So having an open platform where clients can build their own plats sounds definitely um, a new approach and a new direction to, to walk on. Um, so in that context, um, how many apps, if you can uh, tell us this, uh, how many apps uh, do currently exist beside probably the basic uh, platform that you need in any case? And how many are maybe provided by, by clients? Yeah, so so let me try to do a count in my head here, right? So um, that's a bit uh, so the hard question. So there's about seven in, with one client, uh, of which four are built from the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, three are built by by us as apps, right? Uh, so that's one one client. Another client has uh, three at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. Two from two built from third party vendors, one built by us, uh, and one has God knows how many, ten, fifteen. Uh, a lot of them built up built on their own. Um, so, mm-hmm. so it's very different for different customers, right? Um, okay. To, what, what they're looking for, right? What we try to do, of course, is to standardize this a lot more. So as we get more and more customers, it becomes easier and easier to, to onboard and just go and pick and choose the apps you want from, from the ecosystem, right? Rather than mm-hmm. you have to go and reinvent the wheel, right? So, um, yeah. And who, who is, who is doing the maintenance of, of, of apps once they are? Uh, the vendor who, who produced them, right? So if the customer builds okay. his own app, then he's of course responsible for doing that, right? If a third party develops the app and, and delivers it, that party normally uh, does the maintenance support as well, right? So, so we, in order to make sure that it always works, right? We, we version our APIs, right? So okay. even if we change our API, the partner's app should not break. And they typically have six to 12 months, depending on what it is, to move to the new version of the API that before we then deprecate the old one, right? So that they can continue to use uh, the apps that they built without having breaking changes all the time, every time yeah. we change something, right? Because obviously at the moment we, you know, we've got about 15, 20 people putting, pushing in code on a daily basis, right? And of course, the amount of change coming into the platform is <laughs> relatively high. <laughs> Let's say that. Um, and, uh, so therefore versioning the APIs is, is, of course, very important for them. Yeah. Yeah. Understandable. Um, maybe last question on the topic. So, uh, who is then, who is then doing the pricing for, for, for an app? Is it then with a the client who builds it, uh, with the vendor or how does that work? With the vendor, right? So the vendor can set okay. their own price. Um, you know, they, I don't, I don't, we don't get involved with that at all, right? So uh, we just take a fee uh, if they sell it via our, our app store, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, other than that, it's up to them with what how they price it. Um, so there's various different models, right? Some are pricing it uh, monthly fee, some yearly fee, some some based on per price index or per trade or whatever it is. It depends on on the vendor, right? Okay. So you mentioned earlier. In your description of when you started the partner ecosystem, I think you said the word Azure. So I, I think you implied cloud somewhere in there. What, yeah. Tell us what your cloud strategy is. Well, we're cloud only. So so that's basically the strategy, right? So uh, we designed everything in the cloud from the get-go, right? We decided, you know, when we looked at this up front and we, we looked at that and thought, okay, let's just, just build a full cloud native solution. Um, and that's what we've done, right? So of course we can deploy it into a, into a private cloud, but the main strategy is to have a multi-tenant solution where people can utilize the same uh, same uh, Azure cloud, right? So everything is, is built that way um, from the get-go. Also, in, in collaboration with Microsoft, we, we're working with them as a partner as well. And, and it's been quite quite intriguing to see how much you can actually do uh, utilizing uh, the technology that they provide, right? Um, we, we started not so long ago using Azure, Azure Batch, for example, to, to do computations, right, and do very large uh, portfolios of trades in very, very little time simply because of the computational power, you can scale up and scale down uh, as you need, right? And that's definitely something that the classical on-premise solutions just couldn't couldn't do, right? 
not without having a huge data center and a huge cost to run it. Um, this is way more cost effective. So do you consider cloud uh, normal today? Is that, is that mainstream today or is it still on the front end of the curve for some traders? It, it depends on which market segment you're talking about, right? If you're talking to some of the major traders, right, it's very much cloud is the is the way forward, right? If you talk to some of the classical statware, I guess that's very little cloud in there, right? Uh, and then, you know, we have a few, actually, we have a few cases where uh, mainly Russian companies are basically saying, well, actually, cloud is great, but they want nowhere near any U.S. Focused cloud, right? Uh, which is kind of interesting uh, as well, but it kind of makes sense as well, right? So, uh, but other than that, I think everybody is, is, is moving towards cloud and, and cloud will be where we go, right? And, and the one thing it does for us as well, which is very different than the classical solutions, right? Is that we do continuous release, right? So we release software into production this week four times so far, um, right? And of course, that is a big differentiator, right? Because it means you have no upgrades, right? Um, so, so being able to, Continuous release, new instruments, new product uh, into production for everybody is is a big gain for, for everybody. It gives us this, as I talked about earlier, the, the faster time to market, right? It gives us exactly that age, right? So if you, there's a new instrument on the EX, well, we can have it in the software next day, right? And, and that's, of course, a, a big, big gain. So I'm familiar with Agile, which usually sprints. So I'm not so familiar with continuous release. Maybe you could educate me a little bit. Sure. Well, basically, what we do is we we take um, we take whatever sort of feature function or defect or whatever it is, right? We you know build it, pass it through QA and uh, and the beta run beta testing before we then push it into production, right? So each feature and function gets released uh, independently, pretty much, right? Uh, of course, there are some cases where we have to release multiple things together because it goes cross component, right? But most of the time, you can release a lot of fixes independently. Um, we also do it under something called feature flags, which basically means that we we release code into production, but not turn it on. So production will continue to run with the same code base for a few days before we then switch on the flag, which starts executing the new code, so that if something goes wrong, we can turn the flag off again <laughs> pretty quickly, right? And, and have the old solution running, right? And uh, and those, those are some of the things we've, we've been doing. We also do that for customers. We think actually, let's release a new feature. We think it's going to add value to everybody. We'll build it. We'll release it in. We'll turn it on for one customer only. They'll go test it and use it. When... They're happy with it. We'll then go and turn it on for everybody else, right? So, but being able to release code that way gives us huge advantages compared to the more classical approaches, right? Um, Understood. Okay, um, but how does it work then? Or how do you manage the dependencies to vendors that um, code own apps and might also have a new version of an app uh, and want to release that? Um, I guess that. You have quite some quality assurance mechanism in place in order to prevent that the release of an app might crash down the whole system. So how does that work? Yeah, well, it works the way that, that each app can't really crash down the whole system. Right? There's some safety features built into the into the framework mm -hmm. for that, of course. Right? But each, each app vendor has their own release pipeline um, and can essentially release fixes or changes to their pipeline similar to what we do. right? Um, but they can't change is the kind of the... The edge of it, right? So you know, uh, and then there's also, of course, you know, how many how many times can you hit a, an API and those sort of things, right? Uh, there's safety's built into that, right? So you can't go bananas uh, by mistake, right? Uh, and, and that's what we've done to to ensure that. But actually, the QA on the apps themselves re relies with the vendor, right? So if the vendor builds an app, we need to, of course, ensure that our platform is secure and, and fine. And but the, the QA of their app is with the vendor. Right. They have to create their own app and, and mm. release it out and, mm. and, and they can feature flag whatever they want as well, right? Um, okay. So, so that, that, that's one way of doing it, right? And we've also discovered a lot of work around, um, um, 
there are other ways of releasing stuff where people are basically putting it into Docker containers. So basically, you write your code in Python or whatever, and you place a Docker container in with our with our software, right? And then that way, uh, you can keep your, your stuff completely private and, and completely away from us. We can't even see the code, right? So if you're releasing stuff just for yourself, you can do it that way and then hit the API from from that sort of approach, right? Uh, again, same thing applies though, right? Since we can't see your code, we can't do anything with it. You're responsible for what it does, right? Okay, so maybe last question that maybe was a very technical question. So it sounds to me a bit like uh, your uh, setup um, in terms of the development framework is programmer language agnostic. So the client can uh, or the vendor can code in any programmer language, but um, you deploy it then on your platform via the deployment pipeline. So that's very flexible to the client and every client has um, a deployment Pipeline, pipeline. You can yes. use. Okay, exactly. He can. He can use. If he if he's an app vendor, right? He can. He gets his own uh, deployment pipeline for his apps, right? And so, of course, the, the core stack on our side, of course, is not. It's not. It's not agnostic. We use, you know, Azure Functions, Azure Batch, and those sort of things. You sharp, right? But if somebody wants to write in Python or whatever, they can put that into a container and deploy it that way. That's perfectly fine with us, right? We just can't resell it on the platform because in that model, we have no way of verifying what that app is doing, right? Yeah, um, yeah. because we can't see into the code. Understood. Okay. Um, maybe coming a bit back to, to the whole topic ecosystems. Um, mm -hmm. So do you also have uh, partners that you cooperate with uh, that might uh, provide a service or an app um, that they have already? And um, I mean, that requires often quite some interfacing. So how, how do you approach that whole topic partnerships in terms of ecosystem? Yeah, well, as I said in the beginning, right, our philosophy has always been that we don't want to build everything, right? We want other yep. people to build it, especially if they have more expertise than we do, right? Um, then they can build a better solution. So we work with partners all over the place, right? Uh, you know, I normally jokingly say to people that we, we're in bed with everybody. Um, so, <laughs> but that, that's basically what we, we try to do, right? If there's, if there's a partner out there, a company out there who, does, who knows more about certain things than we do, then we should involve those, uh, get those guys to build an app rather than us trying to build ourselves, right? It gives a better solution. Similar, to, same thing with uh, we have different ways. Right, we have kind of consultant partners, right? So doing implementations with us, right? We have um, uh, development partners, and then we have kind of complementary products, right? Like like Fidex is a good example of a complementary product, right? Where you know uh, it's a solution that adds value to our customers in addition to what we do. So of course, let's work together and let's build interface and things so that we can the customers can get more value of the overall solution, even though it's not our solution everywhere. The solution for the customer consists of multiple pieces, right? Um, um, and I think that, yeah, that's how it has to be. So you've got this ecosystem there. Um, you mentioned partners um, in consulting, perhaps. So what's your support and implementation model? How, how do you support this? Well, at the moment, since we are still very small, right, we do most of our implementations ourselves. We have started involving various partners and trying to train up their resources to do implementation for us because our strategy has always been that we don't want to do we don't want to build a big implementation practice, right? That's not what we want to do. We want to focus on the software. Um, however, as we, this is our fourth customer now, right? So, you know, as we, as we grow, we, we try to train our people to, for them to go do the implementation going forward, right? Um, and, and that, that's what we will do there, right? On the support side, we've built in a lot of stuff into, into our stack, right? Around, um, using application insights and other tools to basically proactively find problems and try to address them before customers see them, right? Um, that, that's uh, that's what we're trying to do there. And again, we can do that because we have kind of live 
view of what's going on, right? Since it's all running in the cloud. Something we couldn't do had it been on-premise, right? We would have to you know, wait and, and let the customer log a ticket and go analyze. We might not have the data and yeah, all the sort of stuff that creates slow resolution of problems, right? And so you're proactively trying to pre, pre-identify a problem and address it. Um, so is there uptime or something associated with the, the history? So you've been around for some period of time. You've got a number of customers on your system. How does that translate to performance and uptime? Um, well, the only time anything's been down is if Microsoft had a problem with their <laughs> Active Directory, which they had like once earlier this year, right? Where, where uh, basically the entire uh, Azure Active Directory was down. And of course, in that case, we also, uh, well, our system was actually not down, just nobody could get to it, uh, which is <laughs> in itself a problem, right? Um, but other than that, we, we actually don't see uh, downtime really. We see downtime still with deployments when we deploy new code. There are cases still where, we, where it takes us a bit too long to deploy new code, so we have to let customers know that that have to be be be, um, be down for a little bit, but we're working on that as well to get it to, with the vision to get it to a continuous release with no downtime whatsoever. Right, um, that's at least what we, we're trying to achieve, right, so that we can can do that without having a downtime for the customers at all. And you need to have a continuous trading, right? So, okay, um, maybe back again to the topic uh, integration roadmap that uh, Chris just mentioned. What I'm wondering is, and what I can also see in in, in project that I'm on is um, that usually when you start integrating a new solution, especially cloud native solution, um, you need to think well about the whole architectural design and make architectural decisions. So which systems to connect, where you need to build interfaces, et cetera, et cetera. So is that something that you leave to the client um, or is that something you really can assist also with your know-how and and work out architectural um, designs with him. We can only support it, right? We we need we need uh, cloud architects and things to to do that, right? And it depends on the customer's infrastructure and, and their appetite and so on and so forth, right? So for that, we work with partners, right? We we don't we are not the uh, we're not going to go in and, and take over customers' infrastructure and run that, right? We we're mm-hmm. not experts in that. We're experts on on building Ethereum software, not uh, cloud generic cloud architecture across multiple systems, right? So typically, we would. Try to find a partner uh, to help help do that for the customer, rather than do that ourselves. I think uh, other people can do that way better than we can. Okay, Chris, something to add on the whole topic: uh, ecosystems and cloud. From your point of view, if not, I have a another interesting topic that we might talk about. Let's move on. I think we've okay, got great. Covered. So, Aspion, automation. You have mentioned it already at the beginning. Uh, that's definitely something that uh, drives the industry. You also mentioned some some uh, buzzwords like uh, algo trading. I think I heard out of that. So, um, especially in terms of uh, algo trading, let's start with that. Maybe do you provide already some apps or some functionality that enables the client to maybe build own strategies to run them? Um, maybe you can elaborate a bit more on that. Yeah, well, well, so again, right? Algos is typically something you don't you don't want to share your algos with anybody else, typically, right? Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's something that for us becomes a kind of a private app, right? Uh, because that's your your main money maker, right? Uh, for those sort of firms, right? So what we try to do is is provide the data as quickly as possible uh, and have let the customer uh, subscribe to trades and positions as they change and as they come in, right? So rather than you having to go and run a process every time, we we build an event based uh, solution which basically. Whenever a new trade hits the API, the main position part of that gets put onto a, a service bus, essentially, where you can listen to these events and get the positions, you know, pulled or pushed into your into your real time solution, which then triggers the algo 
So we calculate and go and we put out uh, new orders, right? Um, so, so we built it that way intentionally so we could get as much performance as possible um, to the algos, right? So while we don't provide algos ourselves and, and never will, right? Again, as I said before, that's not something we, we're great at, right? Other people are much better at that and typically people won't, don't want to share it anyways. So um, we want to provide the position so quickly that the algo could get an advantage and go out and create new orders and new things based on new signal we got, right? So you mentioned uh, 500 millisecond, I think, or like half a second maybe. Is that what you were saying? Your yeah, settlement yeah. time? Yeah, yeah, half a second, yeah. So for a human, that sounds quick. That still sounds incredibly slow to me for a computer and processing. What what takes so long? Well, if you go through it, right, you, you the first thing is you need to just validate that this trade is actually valid and the data you got is valid, right? So you have to validate at least the position relevant part of the trade, right? So the way we, we're doing it is basically breaking in, breaking it out into two different parts, right, before we send out the event. So one part is the position relevant field, like you know, which, which time frame is it for, what's the quantity, price, those sort of things, right? Uh, that's what's important for our position, right? So we'll go and, and, and validate that first. When that's validated, we will persist the trade. We'll then send out an event, which is the um, which is the uh, position relevant part, right? Goes into the engine, then gets valued against the current price curve, right? Which might also be real time. And if you want to put all this together, it, yeah, then half a second is, is about what we can get to at the moment with, with, with the stack we've built so far. So how does that stack up in the market? So what 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 is what are other people able to do? Is a half a second something you're you're very proud of and you're wearing it out front saying that's really fast? We'd be pretty proud of that. Yeah, yeah, we we're pretty proud of that. Yes, it's pretty good actually, right? Uh, from, from our point of view, it's, it's pretty pretty nice. And as I said before, we're not quite there yet. We are getting very close to it, but that's at least the target we, we set out to do from the beginning, right? Um, so we're not quite there yet, but we're getting close to it. And, and I don't think anybody's nowhere near, right? So, so we work with one of our customers who, who spent a lot of time before they selected us to look at everybody else out there. And uh, basically their finding was that they couldn't really get, find any classically ETRM systems, which would get them below four or five seconds, unless they put a lot of infrastructure behind it, right? So a lot of database uh, server, especially and, and, uh, and architecture. And of course, the cost of running that becomes very, very high compared to a solution like ours, which is much cheaper to run because it all runs on serverless architecture, right? Um, so, so yeah, it is something we, we, we think would be a big advantage for us. And we actually hope to be able to start posting average numbers from, from production at some point uh, next year, right? So we can actually use that as, as, uh, as information for the market. Okay. In terms of automation, what I can see is uh, crucially important, to, especially in terms of short-term trading. You need to have near real-time position management features. So as a trader, I want to see what is my uh, position in any hour, any 50 minute, uh, any market, any product, etc. Um, and I heard from you event-driven architecture. So it sounds like uh, you have all the, the basic ingredients to, to have a, a real-time position management feature, but uh, maybe tell us more about that. Yeah, what we did was we, we embedded streaming analytics, um, again, from, from Microsoft into our software, right? So that you know, while the algos can go and listen to the same stream of trade, right? We can, of course, we also build a, a solution to, to do that and show the position inside the application, right? We basically streaming analytics. Uh, it gets each new event gets pushed into that engine, right? Update the position in real time, um, and basically gives gives you, gives you a position um, on the screen uh, as quickly as the algo would get it, pretty much. Um, so, so that yeah, we we done that to uh, to provide that sort of feature to the customers. Okay, understood. And um, do it inside or outside, basically. Yeah, 
talking about the algos again, uh, I mean, uh, it makes a lot of sense that you wouldn't really share strategies or build strategies for the client that you share then. But uh, are you planning maybe on your roadmap to build certain uh, development frameworks purely for strategy development or backtesting framework for backtesting strategies? At least I can see that the market uh, in some areas is really moving towards building more and more own strategies, but in a structured and sustainable way. Yeah, but actually, again, we would provide framework to allow people to build their own things, right? But we don't want to build it, right? We much rather want specialist companies build these sort of features and functions, right? Um, to basically backtest, uh, you know, backtest bar models or backtest uh, algos or whatever mm -hmm. it is, right? Um, but we don't think we have the right people to do that. So, we so think do that you would leave the, the building the backtesting framework also to the client, not do the yes. backtesting right. itself, but the framework uh, also, okay. Understood. Anything we can build into our framework that helps multiple people will do, right? Yeah, yeah. But we don't want to build a specific framework for this, right? Um, okay. It's little because people use different stacks as well, right? Some people do some Python or do some whatever and try to use different other tools to do it, right? And it's it's very hard to build something that will be one size fits all, I believe, right? So yeah, yeah, understood. Maybe then from uh, the whole topic automation from a client's point of view. Uh, I mean, I heard you talking about uh, uh, client engagement in that top uh, in that context. So, what is, from your point of view, the biggest challenge when it comes to automation now, from a client point of view? Maybe not from a technology point of view, but more from a market point of view. Yeah, depends on the client, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, the, the the biggest challenge in terms of how you get get it implemented or how you how you do it, right? Because of course, you can do it different ways. If you have a legacy system, you need to use robotics or something like that to, to put on top to automate things, right? If you go with a more modern solution, you, you expect that to come out of the box, right? Uh, so so kind of the solution we, we're doing at the moment with, with the, the, our latest customers, basically um, into their day ahead power, right? Where, where you want to set, you know, create the whole matching, settlement matching, invoicing stuff against the exchange fully automatically, right? So basically trades come in every day, they get pushed over to the position engine, Trades get settled, matched up automatically, and and um, and invoices are created and sent over to SAP via via an automated interface, right? So basically, if there are no exceptions, there are no humans involved at all. Um, that's the whole point of, of doing that, right? Um, and getting getting to that sort of level, of course, there's a human element of that, but people are afraid of losing their jobs, right? On the other hand, those resources can be utilized in way more value value added uh, places, right? And if you look at some of the The bigger companies, right? There's big differences in terms of how many people you need in back office, uh, depending on who you are, what systems you have in place, right? There's extreme gaps, right? Or extreme differences, right? Right? From even if you trade some some number of trades, um, just because you you don't have modern systems in place to, to do so things. So we've gone a pretty full journey about bits of your technology. What you said early in the conversation is you started at the edge and you've kind of backfilled into more legacy features and functionality. So where are you on that journey? How, how complete yeah. is your system? Well, it, it's getting getting pretty good, right? So um, so if you take the GO side, I think there we, we, we've pretty much feature complete um, for what we want. There's still a few things we want to do around GO matching to improve that further. Um, on the power side, we, um, we pretty much have everything we need there. We just went live with uh, FTRs and, and trips spread options, uh, actually last week. Um, so that was, that was good. That was a new, a new thing we wanted to put in, right? Um, other than that, we would go to new markets and things and more things we want to do there. But other than that, it's pretty much functionality is there, uh, for what needs to be, right? 
On the gas side, um, there we still have a bit of stuff to do around valuation around unbundled capacity, right? So when you have unbundled or three-way borders, when you have multiple ways you can go with the capacity, there's still some stuff to do there. There's still stuff to do around gas storage. Um, but beyond that, we are getting to a, to a relatively good place. So I think we'll be kind of where we want to be uh, towards next summer. Then we should be pretty much feature complete for, for most of the European uh, market for power and gas and, and uh, certificates as they look currently, right? Um, and then from there, uh, we will start looking at U.S. functionality and those sort of things uh, um, awesome. next year. So, Martin, before we go into our next section, the speed round, do you have any final questions? Yes, I just heard you uh, saying one comment, U.S. market. So, uh, so far, I would have assumed that um, your footprint is mainly in, in Europe, which might be true or not. It but is. maybe you can tell us more about your location well, the, the, the U.S. side of things is, is basically, yeah, we be getting pulled there by customers, right? So, so basically, uh, that's nice. <laughs> uh, basically, yeah, you know, that's how it is, right? Uh, so, uh, so some of our existing European customers want, uh, already have business in the U.S. or will start trading in the U.S. And of course, uh, when that happens, then they need functionality for the U.S. as well, right? So we kind of been being driven that way. We wanted to do it anyways, right? This just happens a little bit sooner than. Then we planned like like many things so it happens just that way. So um so uh, so yeah, that that's really the, the driver, right? It's basically being able to supply functionality to existing customers and of course later on then start looking at uh, building building more stuff in the US as well, right? Um but yeah. Okay. That's what Thank that's you. getting us. Awesome. There. Well I think it based on the time, we're gonna switch gears and go into our speed round. Uh for the audience who've been listening to this series so far. This is where we ask every vendor the same 10 questions. We're going to alternate back and forth between Martin and I, and they're just short answers uh, just to, to answer what they are. So just to give you a feel, I'll go ahead and kick off, and then we'll just dive in. Now it's time for the ETRM mini-series speed round. All right, so... Will the number of vendors for ETRM solutions shrink or expand in the future, in your opinion? Expand. Maybe you can expound on why you think that. <laughs> well, because I think the, the the product coverage will also expand, right? I think as you get into more and more things, you you, you call ETRM or CTRM, right? There'll be more and more commodities. There'll be new commodities like hydrogen, right? You'll have device trading go up. You'll have way more need for these sort of products, right? Uh, down to, uh, to, sm to smaller customer level, right? So, so I think there's a need across the board. You see that from CO2 and so forth, right? All industrials suddenly have to have some sort of solution to ma maintain their CO2 quotas and their GOs and so forth, right? And of course, for that reason, the demand will be bigger. And because the demand is bigger, there'll also be more vendors. Okay. Second question. How many Ds per minute must a modern ETIM system today be capable to import? Uh, 10,000, I'd say. Okay. Okay. What commodity types and energy types are you offering? And which ones would you say is your biggest strength? <laughs> well, we offer GOs, EUAs, uh, um, power and, and gas, right? I think our biggest range is the GOs um, because that's where we started, right? Um, yeah. Um, that's the short answer at least, yeah. Okay. Do you offer a real-time position management module? And in case yes, um, does that work real-time, so event-driven? As I said before, yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Do you have an automated workflow for straight-through processing? 
Yeah, we do. Uh, we do. We have a whole workflow model uh, that we build, and again, uh, event driven, right? So, uh, so depends on what you you know. There's a trade status workflow where you can customize your own stuff, or you can utilize the event driven framework to build build more functionality that you want to build, right? And of course, also be able to integrate different workflows, right? Um, because you might as well have a you know a nomination workflow, a regulatory reporting workflow, a um, confirmation workflow, and so on and so forth that you want to integrate and, and build build across the different workflows, right? Um, so that's functionality is out of the box, yeah. Okay, fantastic. Can your ETM solution or your one of your modules price Asian options? Uh, our solution cannot, uh, but you can buy an app. Um, so there is a place in the code where you can hook in your app to value that. Um, typically, I would probably use Turbo Wakeman or something like that to value that, right? Um, I traded some of these things in the past, but but um, but yeah, there is a, <laughs> wow, yeah. to 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 utilize uh, utilize an option model to, to do that via an app. So you even mentioned the uh, the model Turbo Wakeman. Wow. Okay. Cool. Thanks. There's an error in the original model, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So. Are you offering full integration and implementation services for your ETRM solution? We are, we are, um, but we pr- try to get partners to do it as well, right? To to expand the footprint and make sure that customers are not fully dependent on us, right? I think one of our missions has always been to create vendor independence, right? We don't want p- people to just be dependent on us. Um, so we also want partners to provide this sort of service. And we have some partners already who's, who's doing that to a certain extent. Okay, now coming to a question where some of our guests have to think a little bit longer. Um, so what is the biggest threat from your point of view for third-party ETM providers, if there is any threat? The biggest threat? Hmm. I think actually the biggest threat at the moment, the thing that worries me the most, if you take it that way, is is really IT security uh, things, right? Uh at least we've seen that a few times recently in this industry where people have been hit by uh, by various attacks, right? Uh, so Vestas the other week was, or last week was down in Denmark, right? Uh, I believe I saw somewhere that Kistas was having a lot of problems with, with cyber attacks, right? Which, of course, is, is terrible. Uh, so so at least to me at the moment, that's the biggest threat. That's the one that scares me the most, right? Of course, we do everything we can. We have external security companies to help us with that sort of stuff, right? But still, that's something that that's terrible for anybody, I really feel. Feel sorry for the, the companies who get gets hurt. Right? But uh, maybe to elaborate a bit more on that because that really triggers my interest. Um, I would actually assume this is a threat then for for the uh, your users, so the the companies using your system. But why do you think it's a is it a threat for you and third party ETM providers? Well, it's a threat for us, right? Because if our system suddenly doesn't work, that kills our business, right? You know, the, the reputational damage of something that that can have okay. is, is is very high, right? Um, so um, okay. So yeah, yeah. Thanks. Cool. So, how does your um, licensing model look today, and is it likely to evolve or change in the future? <laughs> yeah, well, we we try to do do things uh, new all the time, right? But but yeah, at the moment, it's all uh, you know per user license, basically uh, on a on a monthly or quarterly, or whatever subscription basis, right? Um, that's how we do it at the moment. It it might well change, right? Uh, depending on what customers want and how we we add more value, we. We have models where we look at how many users logged in, for example, rather than just a per user model, right? It really depends on the, the size of the customer and, and which sort of business they're in, right? Um, will that change? Maybe. Um, but let, let's see what, what comes out and what the needs are from the cu- customer side, right? Because I think looking forward, you'll have less users essentially, right? Because you have more automation going on, so you have the issues of the software. So either you need a higher per user price 
or you need to basically have a enterprise type licenses instead, right? Okay, great. So last question, are you offering an API and what is the key technology behind it? We use we have everything so APIs right so um, everything is built by in REST APIs right um, mm-hmm. so it's, it's basically with JSON payload um, across the board right uh, the technology behind this is actual functions as said in C sharp right so uh, um, pretty standard stuff essentially uh, all built on the Microsoft platform. Okay, fantastic. Well, cool. So we we've been through the segments of the show. Um, perhaps you want to take just a moment to bring it all together. You know, give you a minute or two to kind of. Summarize up what you would would love our audience to know about Provice systems. Well, I think um, kind of as, as a summary, right? We we are kind of a young young company, right? But with a lot of experience, right? We've been around this market for a long time, and, and our mission here is to build better um, and cheaper software, right? Uh, that adds more value to our customers, right? Uh, I always say to people that you know the the only thing that uh, makes people pay us is we, if we ensure that they make money, right? Uh, so, so our job is to ensure that the customers uh, get a competitive edge. And that they can make money themselves, because of course, if they do that, they are also more likely to pay us our fees, right? So, so that's that's our view of the world, and that's what we try to do, right? And, and as I mentioned before, they, we have a few building blocks in terms of performance, usability, um, uh, and um, and the whole framework around ecosystem, right? Uh, that that's basically what we we structure our software from from the get go, right? Um, so yeah. Well, thank you so much for participating. Thank you for being on the show today. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thank you, Aspion. For our audience, this concludes this episode of Insider's Guide to Energy ETRM Educational Mini Series. If you haven't been tracking the series, there's episodes with many vendors to listen to. Uh, go ahead and dive in. Look at us at insidersguidetoenergy.com. You'll find a page which has all the vendors listed. You can compare and contrast and hear what every vendor has to say. Uh, we look forward to seeing you on another episode. And thank you for your time today.